out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello, and welcome. This is the C86 Show. As always, we like a special guest. This is week. We have in conversation the one and only Sananda Maitreya, sometimes known in the 80s as somebody completely different. He being Terence Trent Darby. There you go. Anyway, he is no longer that person. And this is the interview I did a few months ago to find out more about life as an artist and a human being. And this is it. And this is the first part after we'd made the connection, because it was very international, um, where I began to by asking about those early musical influences. And this was the reply. Take it away. Musical memories besides what I absorbed from music growing up in church was the Beatles. That was a very, that was like um, my come to Jesus experience was when I first heard the Beatles. Um, I was two years old and um, it had awakened something in me that kind of called my spirit to attention, called me to attention. I kind of knew from that point onwards that that was a life that I was going to very much be a part of. Yes. It's interesting because... Um... Because I've always been, you know, probably as you'll gather here, that I've always been very obsessed with David Bowie. And um, I always remember him saying that it was kind of Little Richard and Elvis that sort of made him sort of musically go, oh, that's interesting. So I guess that it's kind of like those first moments that we hear on the radio that have have kind of, they kind of have re- resonance or vibration, whatever you like to call it, you know, of, of what sort of gets to, gets to your soul and spirit. Well, pretty much all of us who have that that within us, we're just waiting for the call. And so usually, of course, it, it's a part of the process that someone shows up who who announces that call and wakes that spirit up with, within you. Um, it's for sure something that, you know, you is a life-changing and life-altering experience that you never really, you never, you know, forget because it's like before that you were a virgin. Before that you were, you were, innocent you didn't know anything you were all wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and you know just pretty aghast at you know whatever did make sense of you or didn't make sense much in, in the world but after that moment after that moment where all of a sudden you know that that spirit is awakened in you that kundalini is aroused within you um that serpent if you will uh, from that point on, it's just like the world going from black and white to, to, to color. Yes, you know. this is true. But it's interesting because over Christmas, I, I, I'm one of those people who love watching my kind of rock documentaries. And I watched one on the Beatles, the one on the Rolling Stones and bizarrely one on Twisted Sister. But the interesting thing with three, those three rock documentaries was that they took quite a few years of practicing and playing before they started to develop that thing that gave them something extra. So I was just wondering, you know, how did your kind of musical journey happen? Because because those guys had to sort of, you know, work the clubs, go to Hamburg, do all those kind of, you know, gigs, play in sort of eight hours a day. So I just wondered, how did you sort of develop those kind of hours to develop the voice? Well, when I was, um, I, I was uh, like, like most of us, actually, I was a prodigy. 
And so you, you know really early, you're already developing whatever it is that you have, developing it really early. So I grew up singing in, um, in church and was able to develop from there. And then afterwards, you know, I, I, I was in school choirs and things of that nature. I, I, I've spent my whole life in music or studying music or around music. So um, my, whole educa- my whole education pretty much centered around you know, music being the primary focus of interest yes. for my life. Because like I said, it grabbed me pretty early. Yes. Then, I, then when I joined the military, um, I, I got in, back into music as far as in bands and things of that nature until I got with a band called The Touch in Germany. And um, yeah, I, I, I spent my time there doing gigs, concerts and clubs and doing the whole thing that bands do and you know, writing songs, we wrote our own songs. And uh, I, I had my period of apprenticeship for sure. You know, it's not like the story just picks up and boom, there you are. It may appear that way, of course, but long, all the time you spent in the shadows, you were absolutely working and diligently preparing for whatever it is that fate was going to hold for you. Yes. Well, it's interesting because a, a few years ago, it's probably more than a few years, there was a guy called Mel. Gladwell, he did a book called The Hundred. Oh, he worked out about genius, saying that you have to put a hundred thousand hours in before you make your masterpiece. And he he looked at people like the Beatles and Sergeant Pepper, and you know it's probably not a watertight theory, but it's quite interesting that he realised that they probably did a hundred thousand hours before they did Sergeant Pepper. And I I just wondered if if you also had that sort of feeling, even though you had the kind of talent that you still had to sort of put those kind of hours in to to sort of sort of kind of make it shine well the talent is the beginning in fact the talent is a temptation the talent is given to you basically to tempt you in the first place because otherwise who would follow it it's such a it's such a weird course it's such a treacherous course the course of 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 art in any in any event regardless of what art form you've chosen to express yourself in so it's a treacherous path in any way. And, and you basically spend so much time in any event, always, you know, see, the thing about putting your time in, it's not just about how many, how much time you spent in the studio. It's how much time you've even spent in meditation upon the very subject itself since you even begin dreaming the subject. So, you know, if, if your every waking hour was breathing, eating and dreaming music and your favorite artist. This is also a form of having put your time in. It's also incubating those hours that uh, Master Gladwell speaks of. So it, it's just about how you interpret how those hours are, are, are spent or how, you know, you, you invest those hours. Because, you know, it's like I think it might have been Master Wordsworth or, one of, or Longfellow or one of those, those great guys who said um, he also serves who sits and waits. You know, um, so while you're incubating all of that in your youth and in your, your time you spent, that's also time put towards the idea of your masterpiece. But the other thing I get from what Gladwell is saying is that like, like any other natural process, uh, human beings have a process of maturity in which like any other flowering uh, being or any other flowering entity, they're going to have you know, the time on the seed, they have to have the time on the ground, they're going to have the time of blossoming or flowering, 
in the bloom. And so, you know, the, how many hours are spent is just another way of saying that every tree, every, every plant, everything has its natural time of, of where it comes to maturity. And of course, since we often do not pick up the story until midway through when they appear to us in the story, we don't get to see how much time the seed has already, set, already spent underground coming to blossom. Yes. But it's interesting because I think some people have got quite a, an old soul, you know, even in their youth. And as I remember, as Tony Robbins once said, where your focus goes, your energy flows. And if you have that kind of ability and focus from a very early age. That was, that was Krishnamurti who actually said that originally. Did he? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so just like, just like an Englishman to say credit for somebody else's work. Yes. Well, I think with Tony Robbins, I love, I love Tony Robbins, but I, I'm sure he um, uses a lot of people's work to um, focus his kind of workshops and um, stuff like that. Oh, but, yes, absolutely. I, I didn't mean to diminish what he was saying, but it was Master Krishnamurti, who I'm very close to, who basically said, yes, where attention goes, energy flows. Yes. Yeah. I've done, I've done a, quite a lot of Tony Robbins stuff. I've been to his weekend workshop, so I've, I've always been quite a... Um, I suppose he, you know, he was somebody that I could relate. Well, I couldn't relate to him, but I could relate to a lot of his messages because I always remember him saying that the two most important things in life is kind of kindness and creativity. And I always took that away from one of those kind of workshops and thought, God, that is such a beautiful way to live, you know, to be kind and creative. If you keep that focus, the world would be a, a magical, and it is a magical place because we are so fortunate to be on this in this universe you know we are so tiny and yet we're so we're so lucky yeah but the universe is also fucking lucky to have us as well <laughs> this is so also let's not, let's not get too 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 humble and small that we missed the greater point that we weren't made for the universe the universe was made for you yes well that's you know so i'll go away and have a, a good ponder on that today actually because it was quite interesting, because a lot of the bands I've interviewed, which were that kind of, um, I suppose they got picked up on the John Peel show, they had that kind of five-year narrative of they'd get together for two years, they would sort of develop a sound. And often at that point, there was nothing kind of amazing, but they would kind of suddenly crack something which would be interesting. And then someone like John Peel would play it, and that would give them that kind of ability to then move into a another kind of, I suppose... An, up, up the ladder, so to speak, you know, and they'd often get the John Peel session, then the album and the tour. I mean, what's, you know, how did your kind of musical experience develop in those kind of early years? Because you, you were saying you were in your sort of the band in Germany, and I just wondered how that kind of then sort of made you feel, because obviously being in a band is different to being, you know, the next step into playing as more of a solo artist. Um, well, the bottom line is that as often happens with bands, uh, jealousy got into the band via the management, trying to you know clumsily manipulating one side against the other, and of course instead of creating more control for himself, just wound up creating a bigger mess. So eventually, you know, I wound up leaving something that I was actually enjoying being a part of, because uh, my my childhood was rather challenging, and I didn't really have that much of a belonging type of easy accepting acceptance type experience. So for me, being in the first band I was ever in, being able to like write an apprenticeship basically there or apprentice there um, was, was working out well for me. I enjoyed it. Um, 
but you know, jealousy creeps in when basically things are getting bigger than it might be able, you know, than it might be easy to control by other other forces. And eventually, you find yourself being expelled from the well, and you spit back on the shore. So having that been that, then of course your vision of yourself is that it just might be simpler to continue your journey as a solo artist anyway, because you know what it is that you want, you know what you're looking for, you're capable of supplying your your material, and it just seems like less of a pain in the ass to to deal with just yourself and your own issues than to deal with other people and their issues as well. Yes. So that's the that's the kind of beginning of that of that process where. Like he's like you know again, your your guy Tony says you got Robin says that you know you put your energy and your focus towards something, and that's the mountain. Of course, you begin to scale. Now, the other thing it pertains to what you said, like some bands, and then they they, they get exposure, and they take a step up the ladder. That's often not seen in retrospect as a step up the ladder because of course what you often trade off for that additional step up the ladder, which means usually the promise of more visibility of, of, of more, basically, the promise of more. Yes. You find out that you wind up often losing the very thing that it was about you in exchange for the promise of the more. So what, what we come to realize is this, is that there are no shortcuts and that just because a major label offers you one, doesn't mean that you won't pay for that shortcut because in reality there are no shortcuts. So what you what bands often learn is that in in going for the of the for the cash grab now, which is understandable, we live in this kind of world. What they t- tend to sacrifice is the very soul of the band itself. Yes, well, actually, it's interesting you say that because um, there's quite a few bands, and you know, like I said. Mostly, these are kind of those kind of more indie, independent bands that 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 um, I've interviewed. And often, the first album is full of innocence and creativity and fun. And then the second album is often the one that they've been signed to a bigger major major label. And suddenly, they get told, "You've got to have this producer. You've got to have this manager. You, you know, we want you to do this tour." And they're thinking, "No, that's not that's not my creative kind of world. I, I wanted to be." You know that that what they weren't the sort of inspirations of why I got into music. I didn't want to go and support that band and do that tour. I wanted to be. I wanted to keep my. Then so, they create the album, the album out of guilt because guilt of having accepted this money, having had a major label commit to you, and not doing what it is that they think is going to help them recoup the money and and make their promises to you. Yeah, this guilt takes over. And this guilt becomes toxic after a while. And after that point, breaking up a band is extremely easy because breaking up a band is easy anyway, most bands, let's be frank. It just takes like, you know, the, the wrong person to turn the band's head, you know, and the usual monster of greed that's wrongly applied. And next thing you know, bands are done, they're gone, you know. But again, this also has a lot to do with the fact that over the last couple of generations, maybe what we call the millennials, you know, bitches are soft. It's just true. It's soft. Anything is like anything is an excuse now to just give up and move on to the next thing, because it wasn't easy, and because you know it was too hard. But of course, it's fucking hard. And if you really, really, really want it, and you didn't really get it, you appreciate that the hard was the preparation for accepting how difficult the life is anyway, because it doesn't matter how gifted you are. Once you get on this ship, 
Okay, you have to accept that the waves are what the waves are, that the ocean is what the ocean is, and shit is just what it is. And it's a tough, at times, mean-spirited life. But if you know who you are and you are called to it and you are committed to what you are and your vision of what you know your worth and your value, then, of course, the winds shift. Of course, the, the waves calm. Everything does eventually come back around. And if you are prepared when it does come back around, if you are still there faithfully waiting when it does come back around, then you will receive the, the, the prize that you've always, you've always re- dreamt of. But if any tide can come along and shift where the band is or shift where your focus is and take away from your dream and push you around because of money or because of somebody else's dream, then let's be frank. You don't fucking deserve it. And that's just the way it is. Yes. Well, absolutely. I think that's that's where most bands kind of decide to do that thing of um, their Ziggy Stardust moment and kill it off. I mean, were there any major kind of disappointments that you you know you thought, God, at the time I thought that was a disappointment, but now looking back, you think, God, that was a huge blessing, you know, and and I'm kind of ple- you know kind of slightly relieved for that. Dude, it's pretty much all fucking disappointment. Okay, because first of all, you're getting out of the illusion that you know whatever. You, at some point when you take the journey, of course you fall asleep. Of course Lewis Carroll knew what the hell he was talking about. Of course Alice Through Looking Grass was exactly what the process is about. So of course at some point you eat the mushrooms, you fall asleep, you fall down the rabbit hole, and you, you wake up in the middle of your fall. You can only take what wits you have about you, what you remember, what you might have been taught before you started falling, and apply them to brace yourself for whatever is going to be the landing and whatever ever is going to be your way back, your way back to the situation. But the point is, if you are an artist, what other journey is there that's of any value of your time and your space? Because, you know, this is where art comes from. Art comes from trying to describe our despair. Art comes from trying to describe the ineffable joys and things that aren't easy to articulate precisely because they're so ineffable, because they're so divine in their own moment, in their own way, or because it's such a horrific thing that it takes time to digest how you would even possibly explain such a thing anyway. But in any event, it's like the, the journey, the whole thing is a part of what it is. So as you, as you grow, grow out of what you were expecting to find, what you were expecting to see, after you take the first bite of the mushroom and fall asleep, you didn't realize that, of course, the whole thing was going to be fought with disappointment because it wasn't about all those things you were expecting. It was just about the work. And, 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 and the journey itself is basically what the work benefits from, feeds into. And, you know, you, you come back around like we were talking about before, full circle, and you realize, oh, that was not only a very strange dream, but now I can appreciate my consciousness in a completely different way precisely because I lost it and had to go on this long journey to find it again. Yes. And did you, I mean, did you manage to, I mean, did you manage to make peace with that kind of, that period and that process? Because often that's the one thing that kind of eats a lot of people up is the fact that, you know, it's very hard to really let go. But when they do, it's like, oh, thank God for that. I've, I've kind of managed. Well, making, to... making, making your peace with it is like a, 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 a layaway program. You don't just like make one payment and walk away. That's like a fantasy. It's like every day you pay something back on it and every day it gets easier to pay something back on it. 
and every day it gets clearer. But the debt is the debt. Payment is what it is. Yeah. And so, it, but at some point, like I said, what happens is, it's not that the debt goes away. It's that your resistance of the debt goes away. Your judgment of the debt as something that's negative, as opposed to something that keeps you tethered to the reality of the journey itself and grounded to the more appropriate ways of moving through it. You know, that's what it's about. And at some point, you basically stop resisting and resenting the bondage and the pain, and you and you, you accept that without it, you could not possibly have the depth of understanding or wit without it. Because, again, nothing's free. We pay for all of this shit. Yes. And karma is what it is. That's true. Because um, it's interesting, because a lot of the people that I've interviewed have... Um, you know, they had that kind of a five-year, you know, period of music and, you know, it was it was good, it didn't end well, but often have kind of like put away their guitar, their their music, gone off, done something else, and then slowly I've noticed I've been coming back and wanting to play a game but just making it much like this is just going to be for fun. But you you kept you now you kept navigating the musical journey and the creative journey. Did that did that take a lot to deal with, you know, to keep sort of thinking, right, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling too irritated or bitter about this? Because I, th- I think a lot of people just thought, God, at the end of that kind of process, it was just, I just need to get a nine to five job and move on. Yeah, well, some people need, everybody has a different way of dealing with the shock and trauma of the journey, because make no, 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 no mistake, although we can't compare it to soldiers who've actually seen war, actual combat. You know, post-traumatic stress disorder is something that affects pretty much me and every every fucking friend that I have who has taken this journey and being affected by fame. I mean, fame is a very, very, very powerful drug, and it's 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 it, there is no real cure for it except going through the situation. You know, it's like Master Robert Frost said, the only way out is through. So you know, but again, if you're willing to take that journey and just keep plug, plugging ahead, you start to see along the way why you took it in the first place. But the the other thing to consider is is, is um what was the last part? Remind me of your last part. Well, saying. it was a little bit about oh, yeah, you sorry. Know. yeah sorry. sorry. I remember bitterness, okay, anger. It's fuel, man. This is fuel. What you learn to do is to stop resenting the fact that you have anger to work with, that you have bitterness to work with, and you have your, your aha eureka moment where you go, oh, okay, I understand. If I use this appropriately then I don't have to resent that I have it. I can, in fact, be grateful that I have this fuel to plug into and work with. Because as long as all of us are coming through a bloodline, as long as all of us have karma, we take the ancestors who came before us, we take their baton, and we work with the same shit that they work with. And we work with it in our time, in our way. And we make our contribution back to our family karma by how we're willing to take on our family karma and honestly work with it, Okay. And at some point, when you realize that the bitterness is not a judgment, but an opportunity to plug into something useful and not only benefit from it, but discharge old family karma at the same time, then you realize, okay, this is where things move. Things don't necessarily move because first, the bitterness moves. Things move when I start resenting the bitterness and start learning how to use it as fuel to fuel my ambition, to fuel my projects, my creativity, and no longer allow it to be used as a block to stop me from expressing it. Yes. 
This is true. I mean, what would you say to your 18-year-old self? Doc, you know, many, you know uh, uh, what would I say to my 18-year-old self? I would say that basically, um, yeah, you, you're going to, in a few short years, you're going to change music, and they're going to basically make you pay for that with your life uh, because that's just the way it works. So enjoy this time. And that's all I can say. You couldn't fight. If you, if you, the thing is this, we could actually come back in time and warn ourselves, but it would actually be, you know, looking at it from the, from the, the side of your 18 year old self, you go, it's really so unfair that I don't know what lies ahead. Okay. But looking back from your 56 year old self, you would think how greatly unfair it would be to burden an eight year, 18 year old with the knowledge of what the shit awaits for them. Okay, because they would never make it to 19 years old. Yes, this is true. You know, the horror of the situation would hit them because they would be thinking from the perspective of a very young tree how to handle the shocks that only an older tree can handle and absorb. Yes, but I suppose one. Yeah, I was going to say one of the things that tripped a lot of people up, and I suppose it's kind of understanding the business side of who owns the music and who owns the publishing. And, and having spoke to quite a lot of people, that's the one area that everybody just still says, God, I don't really understand how that all works, but it doesn't work in the favour of the artist. And I think that's kind of what leaves a lot of people feeling bitter or like it difficult. Well, that's understandable. My, my, my blessing was this, since I, was, since I could begin reading, and I began reading really early, uh, anything that was, I could get my hands on that was written about a musician, a writer, an artist, anything to do with art at all, I devoured it. So by the time um, my turn came to be devoured, to, to, uh, I, I had already gained such an absolute knowledge of the patterns and things and the, and the traps and the, and, the, and the ways to avoid, things to avoid, what to do, what not to do. Because everybody's, every hero's story is pretty much the same story. Okay? Yes. And, and our, our mythology is not just the history of what our ancestors suffered, but it's also the, the history and, and the predictive nature of archetypes. So it's just a matter of understanding, son, whatever you do, Whatever you do, hang on to your fucking songs because they are the holy grail of the business and they're going to make every attempt to put you in a position where you have to let go of it. And so this will be your bet noir. Don't let this happen to you. And by the grace of God uh, and my faith that, you know, even, even the blind are protected by the grace, then I was spared and I still hold on to these things. And, and from this, I can actually look after my family and raising with some kind of pride and dignity. God, that is such a good story because um, that's probably you're probably the only you're the only person I've known who's managed to navigate that. Otherwise, everyone else went. Well, I signed a contract. This was the per a person I interviewed um, at the weekend. They said, "Oh yeah, we did this. You know, they got us to sign a publishing contract. They got us drunk." And then he said, when he signed it, he said, "Oh, we need to give you some money." So he gave us one p to sort of make make it legally binding, and um, and so we never earned any royalties from that particular album. And it's like, oh dear, I can see why you. Don't don't want to really think about the past that much. Okay, but let's also like be honest and stop ignoring the 800-pound gorilla in the room. That business model is only only possible when gangsters control the business. That's some gangster, straight up gangster shit. Let's be honest. So the proof is 
mob the mob controls our business. Is that a, like a crime? No, it's just the reality of the of the capitalist system. And, and basically, if you can pay for it and afford it, you can have it. You know, the whole government's like that. So it's not to knock it. It's like, and, it, and the, the, if, if there's any problem, it's not that the mob controls the business. It's that the mob used to have a hell of a lot more heart and ears than they've been displaying in the last few years when they just sold it, the whole thing so short and made so many fucking blunders that we're now in the position that we're in. So it's not about whether who really controls it. It's that whoever controls it should certainly have a better sense of the treasure of the, of the public trust that they hold in their hands and hopefully do a smarter job. And once upon a time, the mob actually used to do a much better job of managing and running our business than the shitty job they've been doing for the last 20, 25 years. Yes, that is true, actually. And do you, do you sort of, you know, because, because I, I mean, I suppose, you know, I, I probably mentioned earlier, you know, like you know, my love of David Bowie and also, you know, I've always I loved Lemmy from Motorhead and, and they were two characters who just had plan A, which was to play music and do music. And, you know, they both had quite an interesting journey, especially people like Bowie who, you know, went through different decades and different styles. And I mean, with, with, with looking at your sort of catalogue and do you sort of also see a, a kind of an interesting musical journey that you feel the thing about the thing the interesting thing about master boy was that he he was hiding very clearly and obviously and openly in plain sight as the truth can only really hide because the truth can't really hide behind anything without being seen as the truth stupidly hiding and thinking it won't be seen so basically to be to be hidden it has to hide in plain, in plain sight which is to say that Master David was actually the alien that he's already always said that he was. He was the lizard and the changeling that he always said he was. So those things, those changes, weren't just him being calculated. We were actually seeing the process of what he actually was right before our very eyes mutating because he was, by his very nature and genetic structure, a transformative being. So basically he was an alien. And he did come here for the time that he came to do and be exactly what he was and he accomplished. And that was to remind us at the root of who, in essence, we were. That in essence, we are androgynous beings. In essence, we are um, these beings who originally have our origins from a place that might not be here. And that we're capable of creating, as he showed very clearly, these other worlds, these parallel worlds that also not only keep us in contact with that world, but allows us to bring that world to where we are now. So in, a, in, a, in another strange form, it's like an angel who comes to show, this is how you take heaven and the origin of the idea of heaven and bring it to where you're living so that you are a bridge between the two and one can have more influence with the other, especially as it's understood that the density of understanding that we live in is pretty hard on us as people. So the interesting thing about Master Boy was that he was actually that. That wasn't some role he was playing. That's how we were allowed to kind of digest the truth of what we were seeing, is to believe that he was just creating and projecting these characters. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, his, his ability to transform and to move on was quite staggering. Because that was, that, because that was not calculation. That was his nature. We actually saw him openly shedding these skins, these various, uh, you know, pelts that he was wearing, these characters, 
Because, in, in, again, in essence, that's who he was. But why we paid so much attention to it, why we couldn't help but pay attention to it, was because we recognized on a much deep, deeper level that he was reminding us of who we were. Yes, and this is so true. I think that's why he touched me so much. I mean, on your on your sort of current musical journey, have you got things that are um, kind of bubbling away, so to speak, and, and sort of your sort of next kind of chapter? I'm always got things bubbling away. That's that's why we're always on the edge of insanity. That's a part of the, of the thing, that it's always, you know, luckily instead of hearing a bunch of voices in my head, I have to, I hear a bunch of ideas. I hear things going back and forth, and oftentimes the most important thing I can do for myself during the course of a day is just to organize and quiet my mind, to basically just focus on what I need to worry about right now. Because at any given moment, I'm able to basically perceive multiple realities in such a way that isn't always very very comfortable. But again most of my peers have this same kind of dilemma. We, have, we, we share a, a certain type of mind that is always pushing and challenging us towards, you know, what is being perceived right now. Yes. And does, and does it feel like quite a strong kind of energy that you're sort of kind of um, able to sort of, I suppose, either navigate or sort of tap into? It feels like a form of madness that one has learned how to perceive as a gift and, and how, to, how to manipulate for, for, for positive effect yeah. uh, as opposed to shutting it down and being manipulated by it. It's a kind of, it is like a possession and you just basically, you know, the, the ancient Greeks used to teach that everyone had demons. They spelled it uh, D-A-E-M-O-N-S. And that the, the, the responsibility of the, of the spirit was not to necessarily try to dispel one's demons, but to learn how to harness those bitches and put them to work. Yes. And I guess also it's the way we choose to look at things. And we do have that choice, don't we? You know, every experience we have is, is a, we, we, we have a conscious decision to, to look at it either in whatever light we want through. Our, our sort of our makeup and, and, and how we've sort of grown again these are all lessons that you know um, Master Boy was teaching as well because the point is you know madness is sometimes just the very cost of the experience the, cost, the price of the journey the price of the ticket as James Baldwin would say and so how do we use, how do we transform that energy what do we do with it do we let it curse us do we let it bring us down, or do we see it as this very valuable nuclear fuel that we can transform into something of lasting value and influence? And that's the thing. It's like the wave is there. You can't, you're not going to be able to stop the wave. But can we harness the wave? Can we learn to surf the wave and get something out of what is inevitable in any event? Yes. Wow. That's fantastic. Well, look, I've got quite a bit there at the moment, so I think that is fantastic. But a huge thank you for giving me your time and you know energy for that and i'll keep in touch um and tell you when i put the feature out is that okay sure but just let me say this to you i was also um a privilege to uh be able to know 
boy, and um, he was also one of my heroes. And it's just to say that, you know, you, you learn things from the reality of people, not just from what you read and what you interpret through the music. The point is, is that regardless of what is your, your religious underpinnings, the belief, uh, whatever our concept of angels are, those bitches are real. And that's what he was. He was actually one of those kind of beings who we would variously describe as an angel or alien, beings that understand that their place of origin is not here and who have an innate understanding of who they are and even why they are. And it's to say that if you are, if he's one of your gurus, if he's one of your masters, that he's still available to you. It's not like he's dead because he's not dead. It's just energy. It's, you know, he, he left that particular frequency because that body was of no longer much use to him because you just refine as you go. So the bottom line is if you were in touch with the spirit when he was alive, you can just as much be in touch with the spirit now because he's not, he's not gone anywhere. Yes. Well, I have to say, yes, <laughs> I think about him every day. So yes, I'm sure he's, he's in a lot of people's hearts still. And you can use him actually like an angel. I mean, you can actually, you can actually, actually challenge him if what I'm saying to you is real, that he's available to you, to just give you a sign, within the next two or three days, you'll clearly have one. Because this shit is real. Yes. Oh. So, so it's just to know that your belief in your heroes is not wasted. It's not like some, it's not like masturbation. It's actually a value to understanding and recognizing who your heroes are. And then, you know, putting what fidelity towards that you can. Because the truth is, if they're really heroes, they give something back. They're like saints. Yes. Well, this is this is kind of um, a nice full thought for the the rest of my life. Actually, I will I will take this on and um, and remember it and cherish it. So thank you ever so much. Awesome. Okay, I'll give you back to um, Francesca, and thank you very much, David. Take care. Bye bye. And that, sadly, is the end of the interview. And that was me in conversation with Sananda Maitreya. A big thank you for giving me the time. This has been David Eastall. This has been The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. Keep it positive. Otherwise, don't bother. And um, yes, all these shows have been podcast and archived. So you can find those, um, again, C86 Show. And that's going to be on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and Mixcloud. Anyway, this has been David Eastall. Have a great week. <laughs>